Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we're beginning a new series. It's called The Sermon. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 contained the most important sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Many people, myself included, consider the Sermon on the Mount to be the single greatest statement on ethics in human history. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to study together what Jesus taught us. We're going to, at times, find that his teachings are jarring. But therein lies the power. Jesus is going to teach us how to pray, how not to worry. Jesus is going to teach us how not to judge, but instead to love our enemies. We'll hear from Jesus' very own lips how we should live and how we should love. And as we do, we will certainly find our hearts convicted by things that we've done and things we left undone. But we have to remember that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there is a promise. Jesus says, those who hear these teachings, these words of mine, and put them into practice, they're like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. The winds blew, the rain fell, but the house the life built on Jesus and his teaching will stand strong. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5 with Matthew saying these words. When Jesus saw the crowds following him, he went up on a mountainside. He sat down, called his disciples to him, and he began to teach them. Before we talk about the content of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's talk about the context. Did you know that Jewish leaders, rabbis, tell the story that before Moses was born, his father received a vision from an angel in a dream telling him that he was going to have a child. Now fast forward all the way to the Gospel of Matthew, and we find once more that Matthew begins with a series of genealogies, but as the story begins, it opens with Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, having a dream where an angel tells him he is going to have a child. Early in Moses' life, he was threatened by a king named Pharaoh. 
Early in Jesus' life, he was threatened, Matthew says, by a king named Herod. At one point, Moses must flee from Egypt. At one point in his life, Jesus must flee to Egypt, but both of them had to flee their native lands. Matthew goes to great lengths to set up the parallel between Moses and Jesus. But one of the most significant parallels happens right here with the Sermon on the Mount. Of all the important things Moses did, perhaps the most important thing was to be the bringer of the law for God's people. Where did he find the law? He found it on a mountainside. Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. To give the first great law of God to God's people. And so when it is time for Jesus to share the law, where else would he go but to the mountainside? Moses gave the first great law. Jesus gave the final law. The law that would enshrine God's very own kingdom. An eternal kingdom. As we begin this series together, would you join me in a moment of prayer? Loving and gracious God, we give you thanks for the ways that throughout our lives you have given us instruction. As this series begins, we recognize that we have not always followed your commands. But we ask for your grace over these next few weeks. We ask for your grace to hear fully and completely from your very voice. To put your words into practice. So that our lives may be built on the rock that is you. And that we together, as a people called Ebenezer, could bring hope, transformation, and love to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on our little field trip. As we began the series, we went out to Government Island here in Stafford. It was the one place around here we found that kind of looked like a mountainside to begin the series. Well, actually, we, we did have another thought for how we could begin the Sermon on the Mount series. This. But my friend, Pastor Todd, didn't think me sitting on top of the Mount Church here in Stafford was probably the safest thing. I do appreciate his kindness in allowing us to use the image, though. The Sermon on the Mount begins with nine statements. We heard them read just a moment ago. They're called the Beatitudes. And the truth is, they can feel kind of jarring because even though they are statements of profound hope, each one begins with humility, and in some cases, pain. And I think oftentimes we can think of the Beatitudes as a whole as ultimately a consolation, as if Jesus is consoling us when we find ourselves in certain circumstances. But I think if, if that's where we see the Beatitudes as, if that's the only way we see the Beatitudes, we miss some of the beauty of the Beatitudes. Yes, of course, Jesus is comforting us in the midst of our challenges but I don't think that primarily the Beatitudes are meant to be consolation. The Beatitudes are primarily meant to be statements of aspiration. What does that mean? Are you saying that Jesus is telling us to aspire to be poor in spirit? Yeah. Why would he do that? Because poverty of spirit 
is, is the necessary place where we must begin in order to find ourselves dependent upon God. Jesus isn't, isn't saying when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, just hang on. When you're poor in spirit, hang on till you get rich in spirit again. No, Jesus is saying we should aspire to have an impoverished spirit because it is when we have the impoverished spirit, it is then that we are utterly dependent on God. Jesus tells us to aspire to these things. To long for poverty for hunger, for mourning. And if, if we are saying to ourselves, that sounds really counterintuitive, then we are starting to understand. We're starting to see the message Jesus conveys here in the Sermon on the Mount. For this is an upside-down kind of kingdom. We see it as we look at each one of the Beatitudes in turn. But I want to add one other valence, one other lens through which to understand the Beatitudes. Not only do I fully believe that Jesus is calling us to aspire to these realities, but I also think that what we see unfolding throughout the Beatitudes is a natural process of spiritual development. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these words. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to have an impoverished spirit? It means that my very identity, who I am, my only security and safety in this world is founded upon Christ. In this kingdom, it's not about what I know or what I learn. This kingdom is certainly not about what I can do or my resume and what I've accomplished. In order to enter this kingdom, we are required to recognize our own failings. It's the gospel in miniature. Until I recognize my own sinfulness, I cannot claim the gift of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I enter glory, says Jesus, because I am utterly and completely dependent upon the grace of God. And once we experience an impoverished spirit, what happens next? Well, likely we begin to mourn. Which is why Jesus continues by saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, when we think about mourning, we so often place it within the context of of losing a loved one. And certainly, certainly, because of the powerful work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope for ourselves and and for our loved ones after death. But to mourn isn't simply about missing someone who's passed away. To mourn is, is to grieve a loss. And I think many of us in recent days and weeks and months have been mourning losses. We've been mourning the things we could not do. We've mourned violence, We've mourned disunity. Jesus is telling us that when we have an impoverished spirit, we are going to mourn our sins and the sins of the communities around us. But we must see the link as well here. The impoverished spirit leads us to mourn, and that, in turn, 
creates within us a spirit of humility, which is why Jesus continues by saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the interesting things that Matthew does in his gospel is he paints the beautiful picture of Christ. Is that Matthew contrasts the gentleness of the kingdom of God with the tyrannical nature of what was happening through the Roman Empire at the time. And the promise associated with with this beatitude, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Think about it for just a moment. Isn't Isn't it a beautiful promise that ultimately those who are humble, gentle, not the tyrannical, will inherit the land. And so the process continues. Poverty of spirit leads me to mourn, which causes humility. And then then awakens within us this hunger, this thirst for righteousness. Of course, part of the call of God on our lives to righteousness is a call to internal piety. To, to search and find the forgiveness of God through the Holy Spirit by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. Our internal piety is important, but that's not all. We're called by God to actively do good right now. And one of the important questions as followers of Christ that we should ask ourselves is, what is the good that God is calling me to do in this very moment? God will call us to do different things, different acts of good and right. But when we answer God's call to do the good that God is calling us to do, it will feel like our very souls have been fed and watered. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. But there is something to be aware of, and Jesus knew it. So often when we engage in righteousness, it is easy for us to move towards self-righteousness, to get away from the poverty of spirit with which we began. I think that's why Jesus continues in the Beatitudes by saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. This is a foretaste of the penultimate lesson in the Sermon on the Mount. It's when Jesus calls us never to be a people of judgment. In part because our God has chosen not to be a God of judgment. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, The Son did not come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Those who judge will be judged. But here at the beginning, he says, Those who choose to show mercy you will find mercy. When we choose mercy instead of judgment, we choose to see one another through the lens, the eyes of our God. And as we look at one another through the lens, the eyes of God, it does not take long for us to see God's own self. And so Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, what does it mean to be pure in heart? 
Of course, of course, what we talked about a moment ago, the calling of, of Christ into our lives to wash away the sins that, that have infected us. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. Purity can, can be talked about in, in terms of a cleanliness piece, but it can also be talked about in terms of focus. A unity of focus within ourselves. A focus entirely upon Christ and his call upon our lives. Jesus tells us that when we are pure in this proactive way, not only asking God to forgive our sins, but then taking the steps to genuinely follow Christ. When we follow Christ in time, we shall truly see him. And as we do, we will become agents of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You know, when I think about peacemaking, I go to this place where I have this grand, grand dream. It's a dream of kind of world peace, right? All the nations are getting along and everybody's holding hands and singing it. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's beautiful, right? But one of the challenges of, of dreaming about peace on that scale is that one of the things I know is I have very little influence over global peace. But I have tremendous influence in my family, in my relationships, in my workplace, in our classrooms. We have tremendous opportunity to be peacemakers. And did you notice that the word Jesus uses here is to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Peacekeeping is a, it is a passive state to keep, to hold on to something. Peacemaking is an active endeavor. That if, if we were to seek to follow Christ's counsel on our lives to be peacemakers, it would mean that we would seek out the opportunities in our relationships to draw close to one another rather than push each other away. And you know, church, I recognize we're in an election cycle. And part of what we are going to be seeing over the course of these next few months are people trying to tell us that we should be pushing each other away. So what does it look like? What does it look like in the midst of all of that noise, in the midst of this moment? What does it look like to be a child of God? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. The last two Beatitudes, the final two Beatitudes, after we see this process of discipleship, the final two Beatitudes tell us that there is a cost associated with following Jesus. That when we follow Christ, when we claim poverty of spirit, when we mourn the sin within us and around us, when we choose gentleness and stand for what is right, when we show mercy rather than judgment, with unity, seek to follow Christ. When we choose to be peacemakers, Jesus says when we follow this path, we will be persecuted. 
we will be reviled. And we'll be accused. My brothers and sisters, the Beatitudes are not statements of consolations for those who happen to fall on tough times. The Beatitudes are not statements of consolation for those who happen to fall on tough times. They are a prophetic promise to those who would choose a hard path. They are a description of our process of redemption and of God's corresponding promise of hope. And so I might ask in this moment, where are you in the process? Is it possible that you happen to still be clinging to your education or your job or your accomplishments rather than recognizing the poverty of your spirit and the utter dependence of Christ that correlates to it? Are we exacting judgment on others or are we showing mercy? Are we creating spite? Are we creating Strife, or are we seeking peace? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not asking us to be a little bit nicer to each other and read our Bibles from time to time. Jesus is calling us to a radical reorientation of our lives and of this world, where we choose poverty and mourning, purity and peace, and where the promise the promise of following such a path, of following such a Savior, is the very kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there have been times in our lives We confess that we have chosen to think of ourselves as rich in spirit rather than impoverished. We've chosen to avoid our sins rather than to mourn them. In short, oh God, there have been times we have broken your law and rebelled against your sweet, your kind, your gracious love. And yes, O Lord, it is true, the path to which we are called, it is not an easy one, but it is the only one promised to us that ensures our lives will be built upon the rock of you. And so today, as individuals, as families, as brothers and sisters and friends, today, as a people called Ebenezer Church, we confess our sin. We have not always been who you've called us to be. And we ask your Holy Spirit to move within us and awaken us as we study your words once more that we might truly love you and truly love one another. We confess our sin. We ask for your mercy. And we pray for your continued grace in our lives to take the next step in this process a path that leads to the very kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.